back in verse 8. We're just going to read it on our way to verses 9 and 10. And that's where we'll end for the day. Um, he says, bodily discipline is only of little profit, but godliness is profitable for all things since it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. Now, when I see this phrase, holds promise for the life to come, that makes sense, right? Um, you, um, you're living for eternity. Godliness will be rewarded. But he says something here that sounds very like it's kind of out of the book of Proverbs. Uh, he says, holds promise for the present life. Um, don't always think that godliness is going to lead to a tortured, miserable life. Um, now, I want to get into the book of Proverbs for just a second, because I believe people misunderstand it, and it'll help us understand this passage. So, Proverbs says things like, you know, um, if you run with good people, things will go better. If you work really hard, you'll be prosperous. If you watch your tongue, you'll stay out of trouble. And some people look at all these promises from Proverbs and they go, you know what? That's not true. There are some people who work very hard and they become poor. There are some people who watch their tongues and yet they still get in trouble because, well, sometimes the righteous suffer. So what's going on in the book of Proverbs? Well, first of all, the book of Proverbs is part of the canon. It is inspired, inerrant, and infallible. And when people have questions like that, it's because they don't understand, I think, the book of Proverbs. The best way that I teach children the book of Proverbs is this. Imagine a man who is sitting on a park bench. And he's been sitting there for a thousand years. And he's been watching the whole world go by, okay? And what does he begin to notice? He begins to notice certain patterns. They don't always happen, but they are definite patterns. For example, someone who shoots off their mouth all the time more frequently gets punched in the mouth. <laughs> someone who is lazy and doesn't work oftentimes, well, they starve. Someone who lives in immorality and runs with people who are quite immoral, that person usually has a terrible life. And so what we're seeing in Proverbs, I believe, although it is inspired, it is inspired, it's more than just an old man sitting there, they're general observations by which we can direct our own lives or order our own lives. So generally, the righteous man is going to have a much better life than the wicked man. A, a man who is kind to his wife, who honors her, who praises her in the gates of the city. He's going to have a lot better marriage generally than the man who is the opposite. Okay, so what I want you to see is don't don't develop this that godliness is only good for the eschaton. You know, it's only good for for heaven that if I'm godly, I'm going to suffer. I've even discovered that um, one of the reasons I like to go to a gym is I can talk to all kinds of people who don't know the Lord. And it's amazing at just how kindness 
and godliness impacts them and, and makes them wonder, why are you this way? Why are you so different? So, so don't think that if you discipline yourself for godliness and you grow in godliness, that your life is just going to be a wreck. No, in many ways, it's going to be far better. And that's what the book of Proverbs teaches us. Now, he goes on in verses 9 and 10. It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance. Now, now why does he say that? Um, I have it written here. We must place our greatest emphasis on disciplining ourselves for godliness and living for eternity. But Paul has to iterate this. He has to emphasize it because sometimes it is so hard for us to believe this. It really is. And even in seminary, good seminaries, you know, they're limited in what they can do because they only have a certain amount of time with you. But it seems like the emphasis for everyone that's coming out of seminary and most people in the ministry, that it's all about what can I produce? What can I do? How big a ministry? How big a church? How popular can I become? How many people do I have following me? And so it's hard for us to, to begin to to come out of that and to realize, no, that's not the standard at all. That's not what I should be shooting for at all. What I should be shooting for is Christ likeness. And if I will do that, everything else will fall in place. OK, now that doesn't mean that we lock ourselves away and don't do ministry. That doesn't mean that we go move up in a, into some commune somewhere at the top of a mountain. But what it does mean and I think this really impacts us is that people who are in the ministry need to separate themselves far more to be alone with God and to cultivate Christ likeness. And you need to realize it is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance. That disciplining yourself for the purpose of piety is trustworthy. You need to do it. And some of you guys. You know what you're going to have to do? If I was with you right now, I'd grab you by the ears and I'd say, OK, make your decision. Are you going to believe this? Are you going to start making changes today? Now, I'm not saying make these huge radical changes. I'm just saying sit down, pray, get into the word and say, Lord, how do I need to change some things? And, and a person that you really need to talk to is, is your wife. Talk to the other leaders in the church and just say, you know, I really need to spend more time. You know, get people to hold you accountable. You know, it's so funny. I mentioned your wife because your wife is so important to your ministry, to your growth and godliness in Peru. Uh, the other uh, pastors and missionaries would call my wife. Uh, La Querubina, the great cherub <laughs> that stands at the doorway with a flaming sword and her head turning one way and the other because they would just drop by at any time. So I had this rule that before 12 o'clock, nobody saw me. And, uh, you know, pastors would drop by at nine o'clock and my wife would open the door and they'd say, I need to see Paul. And she would say things because she was friends with all the pastors. I remember one of her favorite things to say was, well, let me ask you a question. Did somebody die? No. 
Did Jesus come back? No. Well, then you can't see my husband. <laughs> Why? He's, he's studying. He's praying. You see? And you can get, if, if you teach your church, you can also get them to see. This benefits you. This benefits your children. This will benefit, you know, I like to look at it this way also. You know, what is the greatest gift I could give my, my wife? A new husband. A better husband. I mean, if you say, what do you want for Christmas? <laughs> a better husband. What can I give my children? A better father. A more Christ-like father. What can I give my church? A more Christ-like pastor. Do you see? Oh, brothers, don't, don't discount this. Really think about it. And he says, it is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance. You don't have to doubt this a bit. And then he says, he goes on, and he says, for it is for this we labor and strive because we have fixed our hope on the living God who is the savior of all men, especially of believers. Now I wanna look at this. The word labor, it comes from a Greek word, kopiao, which means to labor or toil, even to being weary, to being wore down. I mean, it's it, it, grinding a bit. And then the word strive comes from a Greek word, agonisomai, which in English, you know, we, we draw the word agonize, to agonize over something. And uh, it describes an athlete who puts the very last ounce of energy and strength into a struggle or a fight or a race or, um, you know, to, to win the prize. And, and uh, now when people hear this, because in, we see this same language, for example, in Colossians 1, they're thinking ministry, always ministry, you know. I need to labor and strive in the ministry. But here the context suggests something else. It's labor and strive for godliness. I mean, so let's look at this for a moment. You know, how much do we applaud missionaries and pastors? They're old before their time. They're wore out um, for the ministry. And, and praise God, I mean, to some degree for that. But how many people can we say labor and strive and are wore out seeking to be more Christ-like? Do you see how backwards we have it? And I, I think the context here that it, it's not so much ministry because he says in verse 10, for it is for this, for what? For godliness, that we labor and we strive. Now, I want you to look at two things. And this is why you must be so balanced. He uses these words, agonisomai and the word kopiao. He uses it for striving to be godly, to being Christ-like. 
He's already talked about not only this intensity, but also doing it strategically. He's talked about that also, hasn't he? So strategically and with great effort, I need to grow in godliness. Why? Because it pleases the Lord, because the purpose of everything is we have been predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. But it's also for this. You're only good outwardly for what you are inwardly. If you maybe maybe if we were striving and laboring less externally and more internally, we would be more successful in the ministry. Okay, now, but I want to show you something. So on one side, for his piety, for his godliness, he's striving and laboring. But then from there in the ministry, in order to preach the gospel, in order to edify the church, he's also striving and laboring. Look at look at Colossians chapter one, verse 28 and 29. He says, we proclaim him, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may present every man complete in Christ. For this purpose also we labor, kopiao, striving, agonisamai, according to his power, which mightily works within me. And so I'm not saying don't labor and don't strive for the ministry. You need to do that. But I'm saying that you need to labor and strive for godliness as much as you do for ministry. And, and I'm afraid, you know, I believe that you're good men. I want to be a good man. But boy, we have this tendency, don't we? You see, there are there are deadlines we have in the ministry. And if we don't get it done, everyone's going to notice. But we don't think the same about our inward life. We don't feel like there's a deadline and we don't feel like well, if I don't do this, if I don't grow in Christ, no one's going to notice it. Yes, they will. Yes, they will. Yes, they will. And so let's have both things and let's keep them in a balance. Okay. Very, very important. Now. I want to go over. Let's go and look at 11 and 12. In 11 and 12, well, no, let's hold it. Let, we, I passed up something on 10. He says, for this we labor and strive. Now, what is the motivation? I mean, where does Paul get the motivation to labor and strive to be more like Christ and to labor and strive for the ministry? Where does he get the motivation? Because we have fixed our hope on the living God. Because God has promised Oh, brothers, eye has not seen, ear has not heard what's waiting for you. You've got to understand that to be literally join in the communion of love that exists within the Trinity. <laughs> this is not just about going to heaven. This is about being drawn into fellowship with God, the father, God, the son and God, the Holy Spirit. This is a wonderful thing, so beautiful, so spectacular that if if you were to catch a glimpse of it without being strengthened, I think it would shatter your psyche. Joy unspeakable and full of glory is awaiting for you. So so, yes, we strive. We strive. Why? 
because soon we'll be home. Soon the fight will be over. Very soon we'll drop our sword and look up. Do you see that? And oh, how how 40 years have gone by so fast. Each day sometimes seems very slow, but 40 years go by so fast. And don't waste your life just by running around and trying to make a name for yourself. Don't do that. Don't seek to be known by men. Seek to be known in heaven. And God will take care of the rest in your life. Now, so he says, we fixed our hope in God. God has given us all these promises. God is our savior. He has saved us. We are saved. We are loved. We are accepted. We are going to glory. There will be a wide entrance for us. All that's already done. So now let's just grow and help others grow through our ministry. Then he goes on in 11. He says, prescribe and teach these things. What things? Verses 6 through 10. So what do we want to do? We we want to encourage God's people to grow. In, in In the Americas, and this includes Canada, we're so pragmatic. We're so about doing, doing, doing. But if we could get if we could get husbands to grow in godliness, how much would that repair their their families, their marriages? If we get husbands and wives to grow in godliness, if we teach children to grow in godliness. If our congregations are growing in godliness, wouldn't it say wouldn't it solve most of our problems? Character solves problems. And that's what we want to shoot for. Not just how to do certain things, not just 10 principles for this or 10 ways to do this. No, godly character. And he says, prescribe, teach these things, make it your ministry. And these are present tense imperatives. Be constantly prescribing. Keep commanding, he's saying, keep teaching. Teaching is didactic. Prescribing is is exhortation. It's commanding. Keep telling the people over and over, not just commanding them to live for eternity, but teaching them why. Because we fixed our hope on God and all of God's promises are faithful. Encourage them. Don't just tell them, but encourage them. Show them why this makes sense. Why is this their reasonable act of service, according to Romans 12, 1 and 2? Okay. So it says, keep commanding and teaching these things. The minister must constantly focus himself and his congregation on godliness and its eternal reward. This is the blessed monotony of the faithful preacher. Now, what do I mean? Blessed monotony. Um, Everywhere in Scripture, at least in the New Testament, where you're teaching, really, there's not a lot of different categories. There's faith. Believe him, trust him, faith, 
And there's be conformed to him and act like him. And then why? Because he saved you and because his promises about the future are true. I was teaching years and years ago in, in Russia and I was supposed to do like 21 messages. I forget how many, but it was a lot messages on marriage. And I got, uh, I think, more than halfway through and I still hadn't taught on marriage. And uh, one of the men came up to me and goes, Brother Paul, you this is about marriage. You haven't taught on marriage. And I said, what have I taught on? He said, well, you, you taught about. You've taught about being Christ-like and bearing the fruit of the Spirit. Yeah. I said, I'm going to teach principles on marriage. I said, but here's what you need to understand. A man who knows nothing about marriage, but is filled with the Spirit and bearing the fruit of the Spirit is going to do all right. A man who knows all the principles, but isn't conformed to Christ, nor bearing the fruit of the Spirit, is going to be a disaster. You see? And it's the same way you are constantly telling the people, look to Christ, believe in him unto salvation. Study Christ's word, imitate his commands, seek to be conformed to Christ. Why? Two great motivations because of what he did and what he's promised to do. So let's go for it. It's the same thing over and over and over and over again. It's not that complex, is it, man? It's not that complex. Um, I've told you this before, but. I think one of the aspects of our stewardship that isn't talked enough about is this. When I was in Peru, I saw men and women who loved the Lord to such an extent that it made me made me jealous of them. They loved him. But they worked as welders and housemaids 14, 16 hours a day. They studied the Bible when they could, but they didn't have the tools to study the scriptures like I did. They certainly didn't have any time. So what are we doing, man? We're studying not just for us. We're studying for God's people. To be able to present to them all these beautiful things so that they might be motivated. If you've been given the ministry of studying the word and giving it to God's people, you need to do due diligence. You need to study and you need to present to them every Sunday, every Wednesday, beautiful things from God's law, beautiful things from God's gospel. That's your job to feed them. My mom was Croatian and uh, she was a good cook. My mom was a good cook. And uh, if you came over to my mom's house, you were going to eat. It wasn't a question of whether you were hungry or not. She would beat you down until you ate. She loved to cook. She loved to feed people. She delighted in food and making food. Oh, how many lessons could we learn from that? That we want to be a source, someone who's constantly feeding God's people.
but, but not just with what you should do, not with just, you know, you should do this. You're not, do you know, so many times people come in, you're not doing this, you're not doing this, they're not doing this, and they're quite aware of it. That's why they're beaten down to start off with. No, talk to them about the beauty of Christ. Talk to them about the hope of eternity. Talk to them about what Christ has done on that tree. Encourage them, encourage them, show them a better way. Be a signpost for eternity. That's what you need to do. And, and above all, instill hope. Instill hope. We don't do that enough with our children. We don't do that enough with God's people. Tell them that they're loved. Tell them that, that, that God has done it all. Give them the courage to respond. All right? All right, well, I'm going to stop there because when we come back the next time, uh, we're going to talk about verse 12 all the way to the end of the chapter, and we're going to talk about the minister's character and uh, the examples of a godly minister and the minister's ministry. We'll talk about that next time. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word, and I pray that you will use it, God, in the life of these men and in the life of their congregation. In Jesus' name.